Welcome to the Fund2000.com Real Estate Podcast. My name is Chuck Ham, and we'll be discussing today the real estate contract and how it works. There's a lot of questions that commonly come up, and they're really good questions. Um, so I wanted to use this podcast to explain it a little bit in detail so that you can feel secure going into your real estate transaction. Don't feel bad if you forget about how a transaction and contract works. It's complex. There are a lot of details. And unless you do this every day, um, even if you've done several transactions in the past, it's, if a little bit of time has passed or if the transaction is different, then new questions will come up or you'll, you'll need to refresh your memory. Don't be afraid to ask your agent or other service providers uh, questions about how it's supposed to work. Because during a, a contract period, a period of time, that is the time for you to perform. You can't let the time pass with questions. You have to resolve your questions. Time is of the essence is what, they, what we always say. And it's always written into the contracts. Uh, for example, what if you agree to a purchase price and uh, you as the buyer do your inspections and you find out that there's something about the property that you don't like? What can you do? Well, we're, that's a good question. Um, there's a lot of questions just like that and we'll get into those today. And future podcasts will build on what we discussed today. Today I'll lay out as much as I can in an easy to digest summary with some of the important details. Uh, relevant to a common residential real estate transaction. A lot of the details that I share today will also be true for commercial transactions. This summary is designed for buyers and sellers. Um, Both need to consider the position of the other. Both sides should understand the real estate contract and its provisions as it applies to both you and the other side. So let's get started and set up a basic scenario. Let's say buyer decides that they're ready to buy and seller decides that they're ready to sell. Buyer chooses a lender and should have a pre-approval for their loan. Or they might have all cash. If they're they're doing all cash and there's not going to be a pre-approval letter, um, but instead of a pre-approval letter, they should have uh, proof of those funds. The buyer should be ready to prove the existence of those funds and the seller should demand proof of the existence of those funds. Um, usually that is done through a document like a st- account statement from a bank or maybe other financial accounts that the um, buyer might have. Once the buyer decides to buy and they've explored their financing options. They should have already chosen a lender and they should already, before they start writing offers, the buyer needs to um, discuss with the lender the types of loan programs that are available um, for the buyer's financial situation. Um, The buyer's financial situation could consist of uh, down payment, uh, credit score, um, debt to income ratios. All those things need to be explored with the lender and then the lender uses that information to uh, create a pre-approval or a pre-qualification letter. The pre-qualification letter is not as binding or not as well vetted, let's say, Um, as a pre-approval letter. A pre-approval letter is more like a commitment based on real findings um, or based on a lot more information that the buyer would have provided to the lender at that point. A a seller should be looking for, at minimum, a pre-approval letter, not a pre-qualification letter because there's so much more investigation into the buyer's financial conditions with a pre-approval letter. It's even better if you can get a direct underwriting pre-approval letter from the lender, which means that the loan application has already been submitted and has some um, 
uh, lender approval with uh, probably with conditions, but that's that's a discussion for another day. Um, the one thing I w did want to get into about um, types of loans, buyers should know by the time they write an offer what kind of loan program they are going to use. And that's important because a seller needs to know if they're exposing themselves to the risks that come with various types of loans. There are requirements that exist with some types of loans that don't exist with others. The, one of the very common examples is an FHA loan and a VA loan. These are federally backed loans um, require what's called an, an amendatory clause. The amendatory clause um, is written into every single real estate transaction where an FHA or VA loan is um, going to be used. We'll come back to that. So back to our scenario. Seller at this point will have chosen a price and listed the subject property, their, their property, on probably an MLS, multiple listing service. Often that list price will be based on comparable sold properties. A good agent will help their seller understand that they also need to check the active market. So sold comparable properties are not the only thing to check. You need to check the active market as well, and that's because once again, the seller needs to understand the buyer's position. The buyer is going to be looking at the active market, and there could be competing properties. You might have um, uh, real estate that has exactly the same characteristics; they're just on opposite sides of the same block, or um, or other you know similarities, or minor differences, or or some important differences. You need to pick your price or adjust your price based on the realities of the active market, along with the realities of the recently past market. And this will help the seller make sure that they're not priced too high and stay too long on the market or priced too low and lose money that they could have gotten by pricing more effectively. So buyer sees the seller's property and is interested and gets with their agent and puts together an offer. What is an offer? What does the offer look like? What does it include? Well, the offer usually includes various documents. First off, you'll have your proposed purchase agreement. The proposed purchase agreement could be signed off by the seller and all of a sudden become an accepted offer and therefore a binding contract. Or the seller could counter offer and it's not binding until the parties all agree. If the proposed contract indicates that a loan will be used for the, um, for the purchase of the property, then uh, usually the offer documents will include a lender pre-approval letter that proves the buyer has done their due diligence with getting that loan. And um, usually most loans require a down payment, so there will also be proof of funds, usually that bank statement or uh, maybe bank statements or financial account statements that prove the existence of, the, of liquid cash um, that can be used or will be used for the down payment. So uh, let's develop the scenario a little bit. Let's for example, say the offer price is $800,000, and part of um, this offer is that uh, a loan will be used, and the loan that the buyer is going to seek is a $500,000 loan, and that they will therefore need to come up with $300,000 for a down payment. Well, they chose this loan because they know they have $300,000 as a down payment. Therefore, their offer documents will include the offer with the proposed terms and language is a proposed purchase agreement basically that the seller could sign off on 
and it will include a pre-approval letter from a lender that has said, yes, this buyer um, qualifies for a $500,000 loan, and here are my findings, or here is our approval um, for that loan. And then the third thing is proof of the $300,000 down payment. So it's very important for the seller to know what kind of loan program the buyer is using. This information will be a provision of the purchase agreement. It needs to be specified in the contract what kind of loan the buyer is using. Less so on commercial transactions, it could be a little bit more speculative, but in residential uh, transactions, you really need to know what kind of loan the buyer is going to use because there are two kinds of loans that I mentioned before, uh, which are the FHA and the VA loan, which are very common in um, residential real estate transactions that come with their own requirements. The contract can end up saying um, one thing that contradict the requirements of the loan, and then both the buyer and the seller, or sometimes just the seller, end up uh, really upset and because they were deceived that the buyer got away with something, which I'll explain a little bit more in, in just a little bit. There are a lot of other terms in the offer, such as when escrow should close, who pays the cost of the transaction, uh, and more. We won't get into all of those today, but we will get into contract contingencies, which are commonly included in a real estate purchase agreement. A contingency is a contract condition. The condition is language designed to give one party an opportunity to protect himself through, for example, an inspection of the property with an expiration date for that condition. For example, a buyer might request a contingency or condition to be allowed 14 days to inspect the property that they're making an offer on. At the 14 days, the seller can require the buyer to remove the contract condition in writing so that the parties can then proceed to fund and close the sale. Another common contingency is the appraisal contingency. That, for example, could protect a buyer by saying that the buyer will not have to proceed with the purchase of the property if the property appraisal report does not report a value that is equal to or greater than the contract price. So back to our $800,000 transaction, buyer offers $800,000, um, they get into, the, the seller accepts that offer and um, they get past their first inspection, then they order the appraisal, the appraisal report comes back to, and it turns out that the property did not appraise for $800,000 but instead $780,000. Well, what do you do then? Well, because a condition exists, this contingency, the parties might have to renegotiate. The buyer has the op opportunity to withdraw from the transaction without penalty because of this contingency that the parties agreed to when they accepted the purchase agreement terms. They could renegotiate the price. Instead of 800000 they can go with 780 Another option is for the buyer to come up with an additional $20,000. So the bank will only be lending um, based on $780,000 instead of $800,000. Uh, so you have lots of options, but those are just a few examples. In a seller's market, buyers will often make offers that remove a lot of contingencies or these protections that we're talking about. And they do that to make their offers more attractive. We've gotten really used to that in our residential and commercial real estate market. And one of these contingencies that gets removed or reduced is the loan contingency. You should have a lender who's willing to get the loan documents together quickly and fund the loan quickly and not take 
more than 30 days to close a loan unless it's a complex loan. Um, so you should be able to shorten these contingency periods uh, for loans, for inspections and appraisals and things like that, unless you really know that it's going to take longer. If you know it's going to take longer for whatever reason, then don't shorten the contingency periods, a period of time that it's going to take for the buyers to um, do their due diligence. If there is no loan, then you really don't need an appraisal. You might still want an appraisal as a part of the transaction. Um, so therefore, you don't need an appraisal contingency. If there's no loan, you don't need a loan contingency. So it is common for parties to entirely waive an appraisal contingency, for example, if they're coming up with uh, cash for the transaction. Just to finally summarize what I was saying about FHA and VA loans previously, if you're a seller who might consider uh, accepting an offer from a buyer who has an FHA or VA loan as part of their offer, um, that you can't remove the appraisal contingency. You cannot remove any of the loan-related contingencies, but it's law that you cannot remove the appraisal contingency um, with, with FHA and VA loans. It's written into federal law because the federal government is backing these loans. The tricky part of this is sometimes agents who don't know what they're doing or parties, buyers and sellers who don't know what they're doing, they'll come to terms with a, a contract that says there is no contingencies, there's no appraisal contingency, even though they're using a VA or an FHA loan. And then something happens during the transaction after acceptance and the the VA or FHA loan can't close because the appraisal um, came back too low, um, you know, 780 instead of $800,000. And the buyer decides, well, they don't want to come up with the additional $20,000, so they're going to withdraw from the transaction. And then the seller says, no, we have a contract. You have to close per the contract. And the buyer comes back and says, I know that we agreed that there wouldn't be an appraisal contingency, but I had an FHA loan or a VA loan, and therefore, even though our contract states otherwise, I, I cannot be expected to perform because federal law keeps the buyer from having to perform uh, if the appraisal does not come back at value. Um, it, now, this does not keep the parties from performing. They You still can. Uh, it just gives the uh, buyer and exit to a transaction where the appraisal doesn't work out. Um, for more information on that situation, look up the FHA and VA amendatory clause. So that basically is a clause that comes from the federal government that amends all contracts to correct the contract if it wasn't correct in the first place, stating that this contract, because of an FHA or VA loan, um, will require a, um, an appraisal and an appraisal contingency. Appraisals are just one of the contingencies. I already mentioned uh, inspection contingencies. Um, most contracts should include contingencies for inspections. The buyer needs to be allowed to inspect all aspects of the property that they want to inspect and investigate, and they need reasonable access to the property to do those inspections. Uh, but you need to, the buyer needs to get them done in a reasonable amount of time, which should usually be stated in the contract. Uh, the buyer will also want to inspect title through a title report and any other condition that could uh, affect the marketability of the property, the use of the property, or the possession, uh, all the different aspects of um, property ownership. Most purchase agreements also require the seller or a seller side party 
to deliver disclosure reports. So yes, the buyer beware buyer has to inspect. The duty is on the buyer to inspect in the state of California, but California law also has some minimal statutory duties that go to the seller. And therefore, we also have a rule in California real estate law, which is disclose, disclose, disclose. So sellers have minimal statutory disclosure requirements. Uh, there are other parties also that have to get involved with disclosures. If there's an HOA, Homeowners Association, um, then they, there are going to be required HOA disclosures. We will discuss more about HOA disclosures in future episodes. Failure to deliver required inspection reports and disclosure reports can trigger a contingency that relieves the buyer from performing under the contract, such as, um, or in other words, completing the purchase. A disclosure that reduces the value below the contract price, let's say a condition of the property is disclosed in some kind of report that makes the property worth, instead of $800,000, all of a sudden now it's worth $600,000, that 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 could relieve the buyer from closing on that transaction. These circumstances also allow or even encourage the buyer and the seller to renegotiate buyer and seller might agree to a different price based on whatever information or developments have occurred during the uh, contract period. One of the most important things that sellers, buyers, and their agents often forget about contingencies are the deadlines. Contingencies have to always come with a date or deadline for performance. The party that has any specific contingency needs to do their due diligence related to that condition or contingency before the expiration date. The party that does not have the contingency should demand release of the contingency on the date of the expiration. And all of this is always done in writing. There needs to be a written release or removal of whichever contingencies are uh, being released or um, expiring or whatever. If the parties do not do these things, then they might not get the protections that they hope to get when they agreed to these conditions. Once all inspections and disclosures are completed pursuant to the purchase contract, all contingencies are removed, then the parties can proceed to the next step of the transaction, which is funding. Funding simply means delivering the funds required under the contract to escrow. So escrow is a third party that uh, manages aspects of the transaction, such as funding. Escrow companies in California perform the entire closing. Brokers can also do that. We don't use attorneys. Attorneys are not required to be involved, though they can be, um, especially in more complex transactions or sometimes commercial transactions, probate or bankruptcy-related transactions. Escrow lenders and agents are legally allowed to complete the entire transaction without attorneys, and this helps keep the costs low, unless you don't have good agents or unscrupulous parties in the transaction. In California, closing escrow is the same as completing the sale. The sale is complete when the deeds and related documents transferring title are recorded at the county. Escrow generally performs this function of recording documents at the county, but brokers can do it as well. Our office electronically records documents for our clients all over California. 
and, and we are not an escrow company. It's most common for escrow companies to do recording. Closing the sale through recording these documents is the final step. So recording of the grant deed and the related, um, fi- uh, the related escrow documents is the final step. Once uh, recording is confirmed at the county, then the, the sale is closed and then escrow or the broker can disperse the funds to the seller and pay the costs of the transaction. Funds should usually be delivered to the broker or to the escrow agent or escrow office prior to recording. Usually the escrow office or broker will not proceed to record unless the the funds and all the other conditions are satisfied or ready to immediately be satisfied upon recording. Upon confirmation of recording, funds are dispersed, keys are delivered, and so on. The transaction is usually done at this point. Well, thanks for listening. In future episodes, we'll discuss more in depth some of the topics that we only touched on today. We'll also share how our office, California Mortgage Professionals, and and our sales side can save sellers and buyers a lot of money on costs and fees. Check out fund2000.com, and if you want to check out our sales side, go to sold2000.com.